Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. And welcome. You have tuned in to episode number 196 of Linux in the Ham Shack. Being recorded in early August of 2017, I'm your host, Russ K5TUX. Across from me is Cheryl. Hello, everyone. Do you remember what your call sign is? K5MOO. W5MO. Or W5MO. <laughs> yeah, well, since I've never used it, what the heck? So. And we also have from It's Not Snowing Yet, Big Sky Montana. Bill, NE4RD. Good evening, everyone. All right. So, here we are, episode 196. Getting close to 200. <laughs> we are getting close to 200. We're also up to almost 800 Twitter followers, so that's Ooh. good as well. Yeah, we're climbing. It's all going uphill for us here at Linux in the Ham Shack. So, I guess we should probably just jump right in and talk about some amateur radio topics. And apparently, we're going to rag on uh, the AWRL tonight. So, let's do that. Sure. The AWRL releases their annual report for 2016. This year's report departs from past reports in that it focuses on the people who make up the AWRL and the larger amateur radio community. For uh, more than 140 call signs appear in the report, and more than 80 of these call signs belong not to AWRL headquarters staff or board members, but rather to AWRL members. The focus of the report appears to be on the results of NPOTA STEM activities with a uh, very minimal mention of radio scouting, ARIES, Amateur Radio Emergency Services, the Parity Act, and Spectrum Defense. As well, you can find a bunch of financial figures um, that tail the end of the report. So uh, pretty interesting stuff. Um, some numbers I pulled out of there were that there were 740,000-plus hams in the U.S., out of those, 160,000-plus of those were members of the league and 93,000 users of Logbook of the World. Now, on the heels of this report, we also got a side note that Sean Kutzko, KX9X, the AWRL's media and public relations manager, after 10 years has decided to leave the AWRL as of August 4th, according to a self-post on Reddit, and an announcement on the AWRL Audio News Podcast. Sean was responsible for many successful programs in his tenure, including NPOTA. I was wondering if the tone and tactics of the organization will be changing with a possible new voice, if there is a new voice. Uh, I haven't seen a job posting as of yet. Interesting stuff. I mean, he really, you know, impacted the voice of what's going on with AWRL, you know, in social media and everywhere else. And, uh, you know, the whole NPOTA thing was was pretty much spearheaded by him. And uh, next to the, you know, the 100-year uh, anniversary, the centennial, you know, that, that was definitely a pretty popular uh, program. And, of course, it uh, spawned off uh, parks, I guess just parks on the air or state parks on the air or something like that. People are still activating parks in one form or another. Yeah, it's very cool. And that was a year-long activation, so that gave a lot of people an opportunity to participate in it. It's not just a, a weekend or a weekly thing. So it was a, a really good yeah. idea. 
Yeah, and it was prominently featured in the uh, in the publication for the annual report. You know, even the the front cover was an activator who was doing a combination summits on the air and uh, national parks on the air. So that's kind of cool that soda and and Enpota is, is definitely getting a voice. But we'll talk more about this and some of the other stuff we're going to talk about here. So we won't beat up on it too much yet. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll go ahead and do the next one here. And it's an article out of Hackaday that says that amateur radio just isn't exciting. That's a statement made by Rick Roderick, K5UR, the ARRL president, who says change generally doesn't come easy to us. But when I looked out at the group of young faces and saw their disinterest in traditional ham pursuits, I realized that I had to change. We had to change. It won't come easy, but it's essential that we get to work on it now. Hackaday suggested a quote, return to the roots of amateur radio, a time in the early 20th century when it was technology that mattered rather than the collecting of DXCC entities and grid squares, and an amateur at first to build their own equipment rather than simply order a shiny radio before they could make a contact. Give a room full of kids a kit building session, have them make a little radio, and lobby for construction to be an integral part of the licensing process is very sad indeed where this is being written at least the lowest tier of amateur radio license precludes homemade radio equipment. I was uh, thinking about this, and the first thing I thought of is that the whole movement in amateur radio, at least in the United States and, and probably worldwide, is to lowering barriers to entry and creating a new requirement of kit building, I think would be antithetical to the way things are going right now. I don't know if we want to exclude people from the hobby when the idea, I guess, is inclusion or more inclusion. And, uh, well, you have to equate this more towards the youth, and that's really what this article is pointing at, how, the, how we get the youth interested in the hobby. So it's not necessarily the first entry-level licensing. It's really talking about the youth. What I kind of took from this was that it's, it's, it's FUD. You know, <laughs> it's crap. It's very naive for us to pick out individual activities like, you know, DXing and grid square chasing and stuff like that, and, you know, possibly contesting as as anti- antiquities of the hobby, you know, in the matter that it doesn't interest people or it doesn't interest the youth. You know, the thing with the kids and even us, we have completely different feelings about the hobby, what we like to do, what we don't like to do. It's the same across all ages. You know, there are people that could give a rat's ass about DXCC and grid squares. You know, some people don't even know what grid square they live in. You know, some people don't like contesting. Some people don't like HF. Some people don't like digital. Some people don't like Morse code. I mean, we can go on and on. And that's the thing. Kids aren't going to be interested in one shiny thing. And new, new members aren't going to be interested in one shiny thing. There isn't a shiny thing. It's whatever interests you is possibly a part of the hobby that will get you interested in the hobby. So it's not just building. And, and I've seen this with, you know, merit badges inside of uh, Boy Scouts. You take them all and you do like the electronics merit badge, you build a kit. Some of them really like it. Some of them hate it. It's, you know, it's like building a birdhouse or something like that. You know, you get some kids that like hitting a hammer, some kids that don't like hitting a hammer. You're not going to have some magical thing that brings everybody into the hobby or brings the youth into the hobby. I think that's the disconnect there is that there's, there isn't a single thing and there isn't anything that we're doing now that is of no interest to the youth because that's just not true. Well, I think the wide base of 
technologies and disciplines within ham radio are the things that interest i mean any part of it can interest anybody and and that's you know that's what makes it dynamic and interesting and you don't want to create an environment where you have to know some part of that thing to get into it because you're going to immediately exclude all the people who aren't interested in that part so i think lowering the barrier to entry the way we have done and make the the testing sort of a broader range of knowledge getting people into the hobby and then letting them choose what discipline they want to follow is the way to go so i I agree that this is uh ridiculous and uh doesn't doesn't seem like the way forward in in the hobby for sure right and your your comment leads more into the our next topic which which talks about the entry-level license stuff i mean just to finish this this idea on the youth there is no one thing there's everything the possibility. And I think the uh, the ARRL just put out some new posters that we were lucky enough to receive because we kind of asked for them <laughs> as the K2BSA. And I had the link up here and I don't. They had a whole series of this ham radio is uh, posters. They're like 11 by 17 posters. And it, and it went over like everything that ham radio is. Ham radio is, you know, satellites. It's out of this world. You know, you're talking on satellites. Ham radio is emergency services, emergency preparedness. Ham radios, you know, digital communications. Ham radios, Morse code. Ham radio is DX. Ham radio is this. Ham radio is that. There's there's so many things that the the hobby actually is, and you don't have to consume it all. You only you know you can only pick and choose. It's it's like a la carte. But anyway, <laughs> we'll walk away from this one because we'll also talk a little bit about the uh, the entry level license here. Um, the ad hoc entry level license committee report. So uh, a committee has been meeting in regards to changing the possibility or creating a new entry level license or possibly making changes to an existing one. So let me go ahead and read this quote here. A clear majority favored a revision to the technician rather than a new entry level license. The committee's report said, noting that this would require no change to the technician examination, which already covers more material than is necessary for an entry-level examination. This choice, uh, quote, this choice requires the simplest revision to the FCC rules, the committee's report said. The committee suggested expanded digital access on 80, 40, and 15 meters. And this is one of those, you know, misnomers that everybody's interested in computers on the radio. Um, where technicians already have CW access, as well as the addition of a technician phone privileges on those bands. Frenier uh, pointed out that while the amateur radio population is growing, the annual rate of growth has stagnated at, at about 1%. I quote, there is a general consensus that something needs to happen, the committee's report said, noting the generally favorable attitude toward attracting newcomers. And my little note here was basically the ARRL is interested in getting more members and seeks to lower the barrier barrier to entry, like was done with the elimination of Morse code uh, from the licensing in hopes that it'll take advantage, that those that take advantage of the benefits from the ARRL's work will reward the ARRL with membership dues. At least that's uh, that's one theory. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think there's a common theme here, right? You know, get more youth involved, get more people involved and get more members and uh yeah so it seems like our whole amateur radio segment has been taken up by the arrl but you know they do represent a good swath of the community and whatever they're doing does tend to affect the rest of us 
It's interesting that they're still worried about getting youth into amateur radio because when I was getting my license back in the very early 90s, that was a theme then, that the ham radio population was aging and we need to get newer, younger hams into the hobby. So, And that's why they came up with that no-code tech back in the 90s. And it's still a theme now. So apparently we're not quite there yet, but we're moving in the right direction. So all you little whippersnappers out there, Come join the old fogies hobby, and uh, <laughs> you don't have to do anything else. No, it was really interesting at the at the jamboree seeing the kids how they would you know enjoy talking on the radio, which some of them clearly didn't. But there were a few that came back and did, did want to do nothing but make contacts, and uh, you know those kind of kids are interested in talking on the radio. So there there's going to be those kids. Just like there's, you know, adults that are just interested in talking on the radio, but not everybody is going to be the new interested in watching, you know, paint dry on a JT 65 screen. So the new ARRL slogan will be something along the lines of after you've been hiking and had a crippling injury, you can get into (laughs) hammer. Yeah, exactly. Don't forget to add that. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's anything. That's that's the key. It's anything for anyone. And if you don't like anything that's there, well, you don't have to be part of it. That's very true. All right. So I think we do our best to promote the hobby as much as we can. It's hard to talk to people who really aren't in the hobby yet because we've only heard from a few, I think, over the years that have actually said, well, I'm not licensed yet, but I'm interested, and I've listened to your podcast, and and so on and so forth. It tends to be actually licensed folks who listen to us specifically. But I think those who do straight-up ham radio podcasts do try and foster an interest as much as possible, as well as talking to those who are already involved in the true uh, spirit of the Elmer. So we appreciate that, definitely. So we're going to switch over to our open source segment and talk about the story that I threw in here. So uh, I'll just go ahead and do that one first. This actually came uh, thanks to a mention in the chat room a little while ago from Jay Lindsay. And then I looked up the story on TechCrunch and it's patent troll loses court battle over podcast patent. Uh, A year after taking up the case, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit has ruled in favor of the EFF in its challenge against podcasting patent troll personal audio. The decision is a massive relief for the vibrant and ever-growing medium, which has been operated under threat of lawsuit for a number of years. It's also part of the EFF's larger ongoing fight against overly broad tech patents. Quote, in this particular case, podcasting is a technology that is used by a lot of non-traditional media outlets, EFF staff attorney Vera said. We wanted to protect the way that people engage in communication and share ideas. Uh, Then Jay Lindsay threw in a total downer and said, well, maybe there's enough money to take it to the Supreme Court, to which I said, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but anyway, at least for the moment, we can all breathe easy and podcast without patent encumbrance. So, very cool. I feel so relieved. (laughs) (laughs) Not, Not technically an open source thing, but since we do an open source podcast and a lot of other podcasters do that too and a lot of podcasts are released in an open source way or a creative commons way, you know, definitely of interest. So let's talk about, since uh, we've uh, sort of grilled the ARRL a little bit, we can talk about our own mistakes in the open source world. Let's grill us. Yes, yes. So in, in continuing our theme in the open source segment about open source projects. Here are the seven mistakes you're probably making. 
the most common mistakes open source projects make and how to avoid them. Now, I've only listed the mistakes and we'll just go over those and we'll see uh, see if any of these ring true, not just in open source, but just think about anything you've ever had any involvement with in project management uh, with related to software. So here, here we go. Number one, chatting instead of shipping. Hmm. Talking <laughs> about the product sounds and smells like vaporware. Number two, trying to ship a perfect first release doesn't happen. Number three, <laughs> trying to build a perfect infrastructure. Yeah, you you will not know if your product will have 10 customers, 10,000 customers, or 100,000 customers in the first week. Not enforcing, this number four, not enforcing the code of conduct. And I'm not sure what that relates to, but... <laughs> Apparently there's an open source code of conduct somewhere. Yeah, there must be. <laughs> number five, losing focus. Very easily done if you draw out a project too long. Six, having too many discussions in too many places. And I would like to add with too many people. And then finally, taking yourself too seriously. No, you will not be the next Jeff Bezos, most likely. The odds are against you. However, <laughs> your product and your project can still be successful if you avoid all these seven mistakes, <laughs> in theory. That comes to us from opensource.com. What do you think? I think we should all take number seven in every aspect of our life and live by that. <laughs> I don't care about any of the rest of them. Just give me number seven and make it universal. Yeah, that that's probably very true. And, and the ego tends to drive <laughs> a lot of things. And then when uh, things start breaking down, you, your your ego goes with it. So losing focus, that's something we all do every day, losing focus. So that's that's going to be a tough one. That's a tough mistake to correct in anything, not just open source. Uh, the code of conduct one is interesting. I, I would like to know what the open source code of, or developer co you know, code of conduct is. Um, it might be along the lines of Will Wheaton's code of conduct, which is... Well, I think this is... Uh, um, I got the article open finally. This is, this is uh, dealing with issues with diversity and inclusion, uh, in your project. Yeah. Okay. I can follow that. It's interesting. Ted in the chat room says of these seven, he's batting over 400. And I love the fact that he's <laughs> using a baseball metaphor with his name being Ted Williams. The yeah, one I mean, they say the way you enforce, they're talking about, you know, good code of conduct. So the way you enforce good code of conduct is to ensure the project's leaders live and breathe good conduct. Always nip incidents of negative conduct in the bud and don't just try to ignore bad behavior as it can fester. So there you go. It's just to be a, a more friendlier, kinder, care bearer, uh, you know, developer community. And number seven, don't take yourself too seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So. <laughs> yeah. If you don't take yourself too seriously, you probably don't have to worry too much about that. So uh, we'll talk about the Krita Foundation. I don't know what the Krita Foundation is, so you're going to have to enlighten me. So the uh, Krita Foundation is having trouble with the Dutch tax authorities. And, of course, Krita is that, uh, that uh, great painting application that uh, many, uh, many uh, artists uh, use, digital artists use in Linux. And I th believe there's builds for other, other UIs. But apparently they've run into trouble here with the tax authorities back in, uh, in February. They were audited and 
It had been uh, claiming VAT against items bought instead of a percentage of income generated from sales. And I, I kind of equated that to, you know, the difference of us doing a use tax versus a sales tax as a business entity. And uh, because the foundation sells items to fund development, they're technically classified as a company. So not as a foundation, <laughs> which means they have to, they should have paid VAT for the salary they paid to their developer in Russia. It looks like they'll be needing to cough up around 20,000 euros between taxes and their accountant's bill to uh, uh, bang down their uh, their original bill, which I think was around 23,000 euros. But the, the accountant's charging about 4,000 euros for their services to uh, cut that bill down to about 16,000. Um, so if you use Crito, again, that's uh, Crito.org, I believe, for your source of income as a digital artist or what have you, and have not helped the foundation in any way, you know, maybe something there for you to consider, you know, should that be a critical a tool in your tool chest? So is Crita open source? Is it copyleft? Oh, yeah. Okay. So someone will just fork it and, and unencumber themselves with the whole foundation <laughs> and uh, go develop it themselves and not have to worry about it. <laughs> Screw this giving money to people. We don't do that. We just fork the project and go, <laughs> build it on our well, own. Well, that's what happens. A lot of these projects get funded for, for features to get added. And in, and it does happen that they occasionally bring on a developer as a paid person for the for the project. And along the same lines, we uh, we did hear from the Solus project. They're planning to become a real company. So for those of you that have not been following the news lately with Solus, um, and I used to run Solus a lot. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I still know. like it. I don't <laughs> I'm not running it right now. Ike, the founder and main developer, has quit his day job to work full time on on his project here, Solus. And he's establishing a formal Irish LTD company to set up a legal structure around the project. Hopefully, uh, he'll start off with some proper accounting so Solus doesn't end up in tax trouble like Krita. Okay, so that's it for our straight-up open-source topics for the evening. So we're going to move on to Linux in the Ham Shack. And speaking of perfect first releases, we have one uh, that's not a perfect first release or even a perfect, uh, I don't know, many, many releases. But it is a 1.0, and it's from uh, Christian Jacobs, who is the author of PyQSO. He's out of the UK. And they released 1.0. So go ahead. He, uh, he did tell us in the chat that he had released it. And uh, Bill, I uh, guess what, tried it out? Yeah, I, I did try it for a, a quick bit, bit. I was trying to merge a bunch of uh, ADIF files from the Jamboree. So I had to merge and then dedupe a bunch of stuff. And, it, you know, it looks like there's some, some tools to kind of do that, but I, I couldn't get them all into the same log to dedupe it. So I, I couldn't really use it for my purposes. So I did take a quick look around of, uh, you know, what features and stuff were, were in there. And the it's a pretty clean logger. It's got, you know, DX cluster integration, a gray line map with uh, station pinpointing. So as you put a contact in, if you have a lookup, It'll, uh, you know, put put a pin on uh, where they're at. Uh, wards tracking, Hamlib integration, Cabrillo format exports, and uh, and many more little features here and there. I ended up still using CQR log for what I was doing. All right. Very good. So, I mean, it's still functional, but you were having issues with it? Well, yeah. It just didn't do what I needed to do with it. It just didn't have the one real simple merge every ADIF in there and then dupe it all at once i right. just i couldn't get them all into the same real log I, I could bring them in and they would pop them in as separate tabs in the ui so and i wasn't quite sure how to bring them together 
into a single log. So I don't know. It could have been just me. Maybe uh, you'll hear this. And uh, I did mention it in the chat room, but I don't know if he uh, he picked up on that. But maybe we'll uh, touch base with him. All right, cool. Well, uh, if nothing else, he'll probably be on tomorrow morning, and uh, one of us can hit him up and say, "Hey, we here's a feature <laughs> for you." <laughs> so yeah, yeah. All right, very cool. But PyQSO has always been really neat. It's a Python-based application, obviously, called PyQSO. Um, it's very lightweight, and it is functional. Um, I know we reviewed it probably, I don't know, 40 episodes ago. But apparently, Christian felt confident in releasing it as a 1.0. We got some hints on Linux from places other than here. Yeah, imagine that. Yeah, I was uh, just logging into TweetDeck today, and I, I happened to catch Dave uh, Medu's uh, tweet mw0dcm about uh, adding ppas to your U- ubuntu distribution so uh, i checked out the link and it went to the club website of ronda amateur radio society which appears to be a 90 year old club in south wales dave is a member and an active blogger on the club's website sharing help for getting things going in linux so uh, this guy's right or right up our alley here so we we spoke in the past about adding PPAs, and I pretty much always add these same ones to the system. And uh, these are the the ones for FL Digi, the the Camel Mustafas slash FL Digi um, CQR log, of course. You got to have the latest updates from uh, OKC to CQR, which just changed his call sign. I I can't remember what it is offhand. <laughs> oh, good. I think he's in a I think he's an OH something now. He's got a two by two by two, I think. I'll, I'll have to look that up in the meantime. but And, of course, WSJTX, which includes the FT8 build, they did uh, just recently add that, um, add Zesty to that. So so when I had it, when I first went on Zesty here, it wasn't there, so I dropped that PPA out. Um, but they've since then added it back so you can get your FT8 right in there. And, uh, of course, the uh, the Ubuntu Hams updates PPA, and uh, that's that's pretty good as well. And we have their uh, their website, the club's website, linked on the on the show notes. And he had several other articles in there of, about using Linux, and he was going to you know, help people add PPAs to Linux Mint and how to how to actually get that accomplished as well. So that's his, uh, I think, his next article. All right, very cool. So those are all really neat. And yes, you can use PPAs in Ubuntu-based distributions to keep actually better up to date with things as they're released because uh, people usually release to their own PPAs before it actually makes its way into the distribution. So if you want to have an arch-like bleeding edge grasp on Ubuntu, you can use PPAs. Yay! <laughs> so I wonder if it's not going to be CQR log anymore if Peter decided to change his call sign. We're going to have to... No, he's going he's gonna to leave it the same. He's already made a statement about that. Oh, okay. Well, that's good to know. So I had in here that we were going to do a wing it discussion of operational best practices, Linux and ham radio. I, I actually read through a couple of very long documents this afternoon about operating practices, uh, particularly for ham radio. And they were very, very, very pedantic. What I wanted to do uh, real is, quick, his call sign is OK, seven alpha November, OK, seven a.m. What I wanted to do is maybe engage the chat room and engage the three of us and just come up with like. From a ham radio perspective, maybe it's not clear for someone who, especially who's brand new to the hobby, like how to even go about making a contact. And I'm not saying that like you have to be perfect at it when you do it, but we always talk about, well, getting into ham radio and, and, and being a part of the hobby and, and, you know, uh, doing something and getting licensed and all that stuff. But a lot of these 
people coming in may not have even touched a radio before because you don't have to in order to get into the hobby. You can memorize the question pool, you can study, you can go through a class and, and all of that. And I actually went through a class, but during the class, I was just fed the information and some of the mathematics behind it, but I was never actually shown, at least in class, how to operate a radio. The documents that I've read are really long-winded about this kind of thing. So let me just throw it out to you, Bill, and you can tell me what you think. If you were going to make a phone QSO for the first time, Knowing what you know, like, what do you think is are the steps involved? <laughs> this, turn on the radio. <laughs> right. This is not building a peanut butter and jelly sandwich from, from Adam. Use the microphone. Okay, <laughs> Scream in it. CQ, CQ, <laughs> the repeater. No. <laughs> I think you know what I'm well, saying. We have to deal with this all the time with the scouts, right? Getting them on the radio, getting them to talk on the radio. The best practice, I think, first is to just not be afraid of talking on the radio there are people that (laughs) that will tell you you're not operating the radio properly but you know that that's true anywhere you're going to have somebody that's always better at something or thinks they're better at something best practices getting into amateur radio if you've got a license you know a great place to start learning about radio and 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 the community is to start local and to talk on a local repeater and get to know the people that either own the repeater, manage the repeater, or uh, or just use the repeater. So a lot of people in the mornings that are just driving to work that, uh, you know, just want a short conversation or a short hi, and I'm this person, you're that person, where do you work, what are you doing? Those kind of things can be very uh, non-stressful for the mic fright people. You know, I would definitely suggest that's a great place to start. You know, get a handy talkie. Don't tell anybody what brand that is and get on the repeater. And and once you get past that part and you learn how to use those simplex channels where you can actually make contacts that require you to log is when you'll want to look at, you know, getting a computer or some sort of logging process in place. So when you do make contacts that, you know, people can confirm or would like to confirm you know, you that's when you make a choice. What are you going to do? Are you going to do an electronic log? Are you going to do a written log? And most people do start out with a written log. Well, to jump back a little bit in front of everything you just said, Ted has an excellent point. The first thing you should do is listen a lot. I believe that is probably the first thing you should do is just be near a radio and listen to other people operating. I mean, there's there's no better way to learn the etiquette and the proper procedure than by hearing other people do it. An interesting thing about that is you can almost immediately, even if you've never done it before, pick out the people who are doing it wrong. And the people who are lids and belligerent and all that kind of thing come across very clearly. The way you interact with people comes across on the radio the same as it does in person. So what are like some super important things that you need to know? You need to know some really basic jargon. So if you had to know a little bit of jargon, what would you say you have to know? You have to know things like CQ. You have to know things like uh, some basic Q codes. Uh, and yeah. this this goes for phone and for CW. You have to know maybe some abbreviations for things like OM and YL because they get tossed around pretty freely. And if you don't know what they are, you're going to get lost. I don't have like a resource, like a single resource for these basic terms and things that you should know. But yes, you should listen a lot. You should definitely try to be involved, not be scared, like Bill has already said. 
and know some of the basic terminologies, know what your 7.3 means, know what a CQ is, know, you know, how to start a conversation on the radio because there's a basic way. There's calling CQ, there's answering a CQ, how to address another party, like what call sign to issue first, what call sign to answer with, when to use it, how often to use it. I don't know how to bring this back to like an actual procedure. I don't want to like outline, you know, call CQ, wait for an answer, <laughs> respond with blah, blah, blah. But, <laughs> but you know, you, you, yeah, this is a kind I mean, of thing you have to know in order to actually have a conversation that makes sense on the radio. Cause it's not like you just, you don't walk up to somebody and say hi, because you don't know who the person is and you don't know where they are. So there's obviously a procedure for that. The basic idea is that you learn some basic jargon, you have a conversation, you listen to operating procedures. Nets are a particularly good way to do that. Uh, VHF nets, local ones, like you said. Um, you can hear how people sign into a network, how traffic is delivered, how net controllers manage people who are talking on a network, especially if it's like a rag chew net or something like that. Because then you'll hear both sides of it. You'll you'll hear directed conversation and you'll hear rag chewing. So you, you get sort of all the sides there. And I think with maybe a few days of just listening to how conversations develop on the radio, you'll actually have an accurate idea of how to have a conversation, you know, for yourself. And then you just pick up on the most used abbreviations and terms in the hobby. You should probably be pretty good to go. And as long as you're not... Uh, you know, telling people off or transacting business or swearing a lot. Oh, and uh, using uh, CB-isms, you'd probably be okay. I highly recommend buying an old handbook, you know, from the ARRL. My first handbook was from 1985, and I used it for the first, you know, 18 years of my hobby. And it's, it's a wealth of information, uh, not only about projects and stuff you could build, but also about etiquette using the radio and does include a lot of this information like Q codes and stuff like that, that uh, you may run across and uh, even talks about some of the, uh, the histories of what such. So it's, it's definitely good to have a little bit of literature. Obviously there's the internet, Google's your friend, you know, DuckDuckGo and all the other uh, search engines. But um, I think having a, having a, a nice handbook <laughs> is not a bad idea. And when my son got his first license, uh, that, that was his first gift, along with a little handy talkie, was that book. And it's just a, it's a wealth of information. Yeah, that's a good idea. And that's one thing you can actually go and you can read it through and you can you know make yourself aware of and understand the information within it without the fear of being tested on the information. Once you have the basic grasp of it and you've listened to conversations on the air, uh, you can get on with confidence that your technique and your etiquette will be good. Listening is great, though. I mean, if you listen to Nets and you listen, listen to enough of them, you'll, you will definitely get it, the kind of feel. And not only that, you also kind of learn a little bit about the, the ham community in your area. Right. Absolutely. And, of course, joining a club is good, too, if you have one you know near you. And they're, they're the kind of club that actually believes in Elmering and fostering goodwill and ham radio practice and stuff like that, because then you'll actually have a person to talk to and ask. Yeah, get an Elmer. I mean, <laughs> there's definitely people that want to share their experiences in the hobby. And, you know, I know, you know, my Elmer, when I was starting at the hobby, was was excellent. I mean, he got me involved in contesting and and doing CW stuff and, and doing all kinds of 
of, of things in the hobby that I really wasn't aware of at the time. You know, when I came in, I was doing uh, communications for Civil Air Patrol as a kid. So I knew a little bit about radio and, you know, we were very protocol driven. So, you know, I was all about the directed nets and stuff like that. But to learn about some of the other aspects of the hobby, it definitely helps to have a partner in doing that. So finding that that Elmer is, I think, crucial to to the success um, of, the, of the experience early on. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> yeah, my Elmer is now a silent key, an SK. And uh, he was a WB2 Quebec Lima Papa QLP. And uh, it was funny because he had a really high pitched voice. So every time we do contesting, they would say, hey, let the YL come back. (laughs) And it was him (laughs) because he had such a high pitched voice. He was like, yes, sir. This is WB2 QLP. (laughs) Oh, nice. All right. So let's see if we can we can run through best practices for Linux real quick. I'm not even sure where I was thinking I was going to go with this, but I was thinking of it from an operating perspective. Like if you were going to get into Linux from Windows, what would you do? What would be the best practice for for making the switch? So the first thing you would probably want to do is kind of like in the amateur radio world, listening a lot, uh, maybe researching a lot, trying to figure out what you know, what distribution might help you out the most, maybe learning a little bit about the Linux kernel and the foundations of open source itself and the licensing structure and stuff like that and why you actually might want to make the switch is a good idea. Uh, Podcasts like this one and many others uh, should give you some leg up in that world. So where then would you go from there? You've researched it. You want to to, uh, install Linux on something. Let's talk about it from a bare metal perspective not a virtual machine perspective, like you're going to actually use this thing on a daily basis. So then what? You know, I, I just well, do this so often I don't think about it. already picked a distribution, right? So. <laughs> right. Well, you've at least picked one you want to try. And, so you, and you've listened to us, and you've picked one that has a really high LHS readiness score. So you know that you're not going to be screwed when it comes to installing software. At that point, once you've got the distribution, you you got to figure out, well, what do I want to do software-wise you know, what activities do I want to do, you know, using this this new shiny Linux install? A lot of people, you know, again, logging. That's the, that's the first thing you learn in ham radio is that logging is important. It's not necessarily required anymore like it used to be, but uh, it's it's probably the, the one of the most important activities that you can do as a, as an amateur radio operator is to log your contacts, not only for you know, sharing later on with like, you know, Logbook of the World, EQSL and stuff like that, should you be interested in that. But also knowing that if you worked a certain band at a certain time during the year, you kind of get an idea of how propagation kind of works just throughout your own log. You know, oh, I noticed that in the middle of the day, I generally work 15 and 20 meters. I, I hardly have any 40 meter contacts. The ones I do are only in state or local contacts. So logging teaches us a little bit about not only our activities in in ham radio, but also a little bit about propagation that is specific to our location. So that's why logging is really, really important. And picking a good logger will will definitely make that that transition easier. And, you know, we've talked about, you know, obviously you talked about PyLog tonight, or PyQSO, um, CQR log, 
you know, if you're looking for something full featured and has all the interconnects with all these other, you know, log sharing services like Logbook of the World and EQSL and Club Log and, you know, the million other things, you know, pick something that's full featured. Um, that'll, that'll save you having to transition to something later on or trying to, uh, you know, handcraft files for export for these various services. Keeping things simple is uh, always a best practice. So pick something that works, pick something that's simple, pick something that makes some, you know, makes it easy for you to use. Yeah, definitely. Don't don't be afraid to like branch out a little bit and explore some of the different options because you may find something that really speaks to you or really works the way your brain works and you get comfortable with it easily. Uh, Jim in the chat room says he would start with whatever his Elmer was using uh, so you can get the best possible support, which I certainly agree with. Um, you may not have the best application set or best distribution straight up front, but at least you have a good place to ask questions and, and get the help you need when you need it. Logging from a system perspective is also good. Make sure you have good logs. Make sure you back up everything. If you're going to be keeping logs, you want to make sure that those logs are stored in at least two places in at least two different locations uh, so that when you lose it, and you will, you have at least one copy of it. You know, making sure that uh, you keep up to date on your systems and you keep up to date with software products and applications because, like in the case of FT8 that just came out, new things are evolving and being released all the time. If you want to be current, you know, make sure you uh, use a distribution that either stays current or gives you the opportunity to keep yourself current and and any of the modern distributions do that keep your system secure especially if it's going to be connected to a network somewhere you know and a lot of computers are connected to a network if you're just using it for ham radio you don't necessarily have to connect to to a network but you're probably going to uh so make sure people can't get into it steal your data hijack it to be used for other nefarious purposes and things like that security is always important Use all of the help tools that are available to you, certainly. Um, There's the IRC chats. There are mailing lists. There are Elmers. There are forums. There are websites and wikis related to pretty much every project out there. Make sure you know as much as you can about the things you use and always be open to new ideas and new concepts and new applications uh, that, that may do something that you weren't able to do before. And I yeah, sort of interrupted yeah, a thought you had, friend. but <laughs> you were going to, you had a number two that I interrupted. Oh, there was another number two. Oh, well, you had a number two. You were, you were starting to say something when I jumped in there. <laughs> oh yeah. I was saying once you, once you've got your log, you know, then you, then you have other options out there. You know, what, what interests you in the hobby? You know, is it PSK? Is it some digital mode? You know, look for the best of breed applications in those areas. Certain digital applications that help you decode Morse code. And uh, that can help you, you know, learn CW. And that's a, that's a pretty, uh, pretty significant part of the hobby, as it has been and probably always will be. There are tons of applications out there. And like we harp here on the podcast is, you know, look at the, the ham radio pure blend packages. Just go ahead and install them all. <laughs> you know, it won't hurt you to install them all. You, you probably have enough hard drive space, I promise you. You know, look and see what's out there. There are a plethora of applications that I have yet to open. <laughs> we have yet to cover on the podcast here for Linux and, and amateur radio, um, including things that 
you know, can help you study for, you know, Morse code, help you study for your next upgrade. You know, there's tons of uh, licensing, testing applications and stuff like that. Tutoring applications, um, electronics design. There's there's tons of applications for that as well. There's many places you, you can take your Linux box and your logger to the next level. I hope that people don't think this is like remedial. You know, we're like 196 episodes into our program here and we're talking about the very basics of things. But I think as things move forward, you sometimes forget about how to start at the very beginning. And not everyone starts listening to our show or any show at episode number one. It's always good to go back and just kind of address things from the very beginning. So at least those who may not have come back to it don't have to figure out where in the past this this basic information that gets them started and gets the ball rolling actually shows up. So I think it's it's not a bad thing to do a refresher from time to time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely uh, appreciate that. And I've, I've been thinking a lot about that lately, too, as we continue to dive further and further. It, it becomes harder and harder to find new things that are interesting. And and sometimes, yeah, we should should go back and revisit you know, very simple things like, you know, how to use Hamlib, how to interface a rig to uh, your Linux box. So there are a lot of interesting topics that, that we will hopefully be covering and talk more about and more, you know, simplistic um, uses of, of applications that are out there for Linux in the Hamshack. And this is also a good place to put in a call for feedback from our listeners. And we have a lot of listeners that, you know, a rough count, we have three to 4,000 people who listen to this program. So it would be nice to hear from at least a few of you. If you have anything that you'd like to know, maybe we haven't ever touched on it, or maybe it's something we touched on, you know, a hundred episodes ago, and it would be nice to maybe update and, and talk about again, or it's a simple thing that we completely missed or, or anything like that. This is where feedback really helps us out and lets us know where our information maybe has slipped through the cracks and maybe there's something we could address and maybe there's a topic that um, is of real interest to people out there and we don't even realize it. If you have something you want to tell us that we can address and, and go into some detail on, that would really help us out. And there's lots of ways to do that. And at the end of the show, if you listen to the outro, we'll give you all the ways that you can get in contact with us and we would love to address those things specifically. I think that's a good spot to leave that. I think so as well, which means we can go right into the music. And since we're kind of on a retro theme here, I was going to, in a fit of retro slash laziness, play a song from the distant past on the show that I played once before because it's a song that I really, really like. But it turns out that the song by John Brown's Body that came out many, many years ago that I really, really love has a remix so I get to play an old song with a new twist. So I feel like I've come full circle on that. Anyway, this is um, from SoundCloud, actually, instead of Jamendo this time. It's a remix of the song Give Yourself Over by John Brown's Body. And it's called the Goldilocks versus Synth Girl remix. So obviously it's going to be a little reggae techno. Uh, but I actually enjoyed listening to this one earlier. So we're going to give it a spin here. And we'll come back in about four and a half minutes and talk about some more stuff.
we hold our ground and let nobody test us Whatever offends us, we're keeping it conscious We're moving to the rhythm that reveal a new concept After this harvest, a musical regress Reveal itself in a manner that we can never contest We carry no unrest, we seek only reason For the search, we go sleepless For the truth is the deepest With our defense, we prevent sickness We hold our ground and let nobody test us Whatever offends us, we're keeping it conscious We're moving to the rhythm that reveal a new concept After this harvest, a musical regress Reveal itself in a manner that we can never contest was john brown's body with give yourself over and uh, that was courtesy of soundcloud moving on from the music we have some announcements and feedback and the first is a bit of an announcement i guess from bill about uh, n1mm we brought this up a couple of episodes ago i think when we were talking about n1mm being closed source i guess but source available so you tried to get the source and i sent an email to uh tom n1mm from my uh k2bsa account so i could look somewhat official and i have not got a response surprise surprise i i do think there are some opportunities to improve the software and uh, i know they have quite a few people on the team but uh you know let's say they actually shared it on github and allowed you know pushes and pulls and all the fancy stuff i think it would probably go farther we'll keep trying to get a response from tom and 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 see if we can get some kind of some kind of feedback from them on uh, on a request whether uh, it's a yay or nay and uh, what the level of access to the software actually is we have an email from gene our favorite u.s ham in thailand bravo x-ray 8 alpha alpha delta 
who sent me this email. He says, Russ, I'm almost up to date on listening to LHS podcasts. If the rest of the summer goes well, I will be there before the new school year begins. In a recent podcast, post the 2017 Dayton Ham Fest, you reported on changes to the licensing requirements here in Taiwan. Uh, you assume that many new licensees would be Americans working here. In fact, that number would be very small. I inquired of David Cao of the Chinese Taipei Amateur Radio League regarding what percent of current license holders in Taiwan are foreigners. And here's his response, quote, NCC feedback, IT engineer, say that there is no way to filter out from the database. I estimate the number of relatively small should only 0.004%. In Taiwan, the license exam must be taken in Mandarin Chinese, a much bigger hurdle than any CW requirement would have been. Uh, I know a handful of foreign hams in Taiwan, Dutch, Japanese, British, German, etc., but I am the only American ham here that I'm aware of. I think temporary operating permits may allow operation for visiting foreigners without the exam if the applicant is a holder of a valid license in another nation, however. Okay, thanks again for the podcast. Congrats to Cheryl on getting her ticket. 73 gene bravo extra 8 alpha alpha delta so very cool thanks gene and i didn't realize that he would actually go to the trouble of contacting the amateur radio authority over there in taiwan and trying to find out <laughs> well it's cool that he did that. no it so. is very cool that he did and i love how the estimate is four thousandths of a percent i just <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty accurate number that's yeah, a very yeah. accurate number for an estimate around in the united states we would say less than one percent Thanks again, Gene. I hope you catch up to hear this before too long. So that means uh, we're on to segment five, and that is Cheryl's Recipe Corner. So this week, I am going to talk about fair food. Uh, it's fair time in the United States, state fairs, county fairs, regional fairs, etc. So I decided to share a few recipes of food that you'll find at fairs, especially in the Midwest. Funnel cakes it is a round uh, concoction of dough that is thread-like, and that's usually covered in powdered sugar. So for that, you need uh, sugar, uh, excuse me, flour, granulated sugar, baking soda, baking powder, salt, eggs, milk, vanilla extract, and some oil for frying it. And then you'll uh, mix all that together and put it in a measuring cup so you can pour it out in a big circle of threads. Uh, and once it's done, you know, cover it in powdered sugar and you're done. And for caramel corn, which everybody knows what caramel corn is, you need popcorn, brown sugar, butter, corn syrup, cream of tartar, salt, and baking soda. Popcorn in a bowl and cover it, you know, after you mix all this stuff together in a saucepan, dump it on your popcorn, stick it in the oven, and stir it occasionally until it's all nice and gooey, yummy. So, moving on, and I, I'm, <laughs> we're going to talk about my whiskey corner now. What I'm doing this time is the Lafroig 10-year in the cask strength. They have uh, Lafroig 10-year in a couple of different versions, but this is the cask strength. Uh, this one is 56.5%, which is 113 proof, and I am drinking it just that way without uh, water or anything in it. The region on this is Isla, and the color is what they call golden honey, which I call uh, sort of a honey caramel color. The nose on this is pretty much peat. It's peat, 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 some peat, some more peat, some peat, some seaweed, some smoke, some peat, uh, a little <laughs> bit of brine, vanilla, and some peat. And, oh, maybe, and don't forget peat. And some peat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the taste on it is a little more complex than the nose, but it definitely starts off with, say it with me now, peat. peat. Uh, it also has a good 
uh, smoke, uh, like a wood smoke, barbecue smoke, like hickory smoke. It also has that, like in some other scotches, the sort of biscuit dough or bread dough taste to it, uh, which is also pretty forward. And malt, like the malt from like uh, Whoppers, like literal. Yeah, malted candy. Yeah, like yeah. like sweet malt, uh, vanilla, honey, and actually a taste of like jerky or smoked meat kind of like a smoked like a brisket meat jerky kind of thing on it as well and a little bit in with the sort of vanilla honey thing kind of like a fresh fruit and i'm calling it pear it could be something else but it's in there sort of way down at the bottom if you actually throw some water into this water does open it up a little bit but i actually prefer not to open it Water in scotch tends to introduce more floral notes. You'll get a little bit of citrus or maybe even some spice, like some curry or coriander or baking spices, like allspice, stuff like that. And like I said, a floral note. The cost on this is, depending on where you get it, between $65 and $80 for a fifth, because this is one of my favorites and one of Cheryl's favorites too. We're giving this a 94 this one's not quite as good as the lagavulin 16 but it's it's right there with it moving on from that let's talk about the social media roundup so this week for the subscriptions we have todd bowers thor wiegman michael jacobs Stephen harp charlie brown kevin murray wayne carpenter robert doherty christopher weaver doug redder john fotchke robert pitts bill pewter darren king james blocker Dylan Angle, Stephen Sainer, Alan Wilson, Donald Glover, John Clark, Michael Aylo, Robert Halliday, Brian Smith, Johnny Kinsey, Ronald Ikey, Paul Griffith, Robert Yerke, Michael Connolly, Jeremy Hall, and Jonas Rulo. On Facebook, Lucas Gill joined us. On Google Plus, there was Christopher Rowan, Andrew Stevens, and Michael Brydak. Twitter is at H-U-A-L-E-T. At William Large, at Barry Swat, at Phil Shapiro, at M. Brydak, at KD0IJP, at VO1PWF, at Intergloss A, at M0GLJ, at VE6SAR, at Ham Radio Fund 2017, at and at N6ITE. No one joined us on YouTube, no one joined the mailing list, and there were no merchandise sales this week. So anyway, we should probably wrap up the show. I will go ahead and press the outro music, and there it is. So you can become an LHS ambassador. Visit the website for upcoming events and information on how you can represent Linux in the Ham Shack at a nearby Linux con or Ham Fest. We love feedback. You can email us at info at lhspodcast.info. Comment on an episode on the website, post on Google+, Facebook, or Twitter, or leave a voicemail at 1909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1909-547-7469. Visit our IRC channel, Octothorpe LHS Podcast, on Freenode, and subscribe to our mailing list. Show merchandise from coffee mugs to t-shirts to wall clocks and lots of other stuff can be purchased at... HTTP colon stroke stroke www.cafepress.com stroke LHS podcast. You can also help the show by clicking on the sponsored ads on the right hand column of the homepage. Listen live every other Monday night at 8 o'clock Central Time. That's Tuesday morning at 0100 Zulu in the summer and 0200 Zulu in the winter. 
Our recording schedule and countdown timer to the next episode are on the website, and that website is lhspodcast.info, and it has everything you ever wanted to know about the show. Thank you to all of our listeners live and quasi-live, past, present, and future, and to those who have given their time, ears, shares, and money for the show. We appreciate each and every one of you, and you help keep us going every time we do this thing. So this has been episode number 196 of Linux in the Ham Shack. My name is Russ, K5TUX, and I'm here in Studio 3D in southwest Missouri, along with Cheryl. Good evening, everyone. And what was your call sign again? Uh, W5MOO. Very good. Wow. And also from It's Not Quite Snowing in Big Sky, Montana Country, Bill, any 4RD? 73, everyone. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Come, take care, everyone. my place.